0: I remember a specific day when I was in sixth grade. I was in a musty old portable classroom begrudgingly used while renovations were completed on a building that I would never set foot in. But this particular day was when parents would come to classes and talk about what they did. A sort of career day. We may have heard from roughly two or three folks, but one individual stuck out to me. He was a food photographer. You know how a hamburger can look absolutely delicious or vegetables look freshly picked in every sort of advertisement? I've got some news for you. It's mostly fake. The parent talked about the methods and the craft that went into making pancakes look delectable, often taking hours to set up for just one photograph. It's not syrup they use. It's motor oil. But... I don't remember this day because I felt like I had been lied to my whole life. I remember this day because my eyes were open to the range of possibilities that one could entertain with a career in the arts. I think we often forget the impact that small gestures can have on the younger generation. If you're a parent or even in proximity to someone searching for meaning, leading by example can create a lasting impression. While she boasts over a decade of experience leading up Pan Intelligence, Xandra Moore was gracious enough to sit down with Paddle CMO Andrew Davies at Sastock 2022 and discuss, among other important subjects, what it takes to build a talent pipeline. We can and will share lessons on how to build better SaaS, but let this episode remind you that it's not always about finding the next growth hack. Paying it forward to the next generation can return dividends of immeasurable value. From Paddle, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, Sandra Moore dives deep on building a talent pipeline. We talk about spinning pan intelligence out of another company, competing against giants, being intentional about inclusivity, nailing your go-to-market motion, and a Q&A from SASDoc2022. After you finish the episode, check out the show notes for an in-depth field guide focused on what we go over. First up, Xandra talks about spinning pen intelligence out of another company.
1: Hello. Welcome to SAS Talk, little Protect the Hustle stage. We've got Zandra here. We're going to have a fantastic conversation for the next little while. Feel free to listen and sit down if you'd like to, but this will be going out on our Protect the Hustle podcast to thousands of people. So we're going to be going through a whole range of questions and conversation here. There'll be time for QA as well afterwards if anyone wants to jump in. And let's get going. Great to have you with us. Thank you very much. So why don't we just start at the top? Can you just give us a very quick introduction to Pan Intelligence and what the business does? And then we'll dive into you and your backstory. As well.
2: Yeah, cool. Um, so, Pan Intelligence, we're an embedded analytics software platform for SaaS vendors. So, uh, usually, SaaS vendors get to a point in their growth and journey where what they've built for themselves doesn't quite cut it for their customers. Mm-hmm. And they need to have more self service in app analytics, reporting, dashboards, and uh, machine learning. So, we're the engine that they white label and embed in their product. So, most of our go to market is focused on ha- helping those SaaS vendors to, to improve the data maturity in their product but also enabling them as a business that's us
1: very cool and so you're obviously showing up a sas doc is this your first year here or have you been here multiple years of the past
2: no, no it's the first year actually we sort of just missed getting in because of uh, the, the last disruption of the three years and there not being an opportunity to do it so it's great to be here it's been super busy I, I'm, I'm amazed at just the energy in the rooms it's been fantastic and even on day two as we are today the energy is still right up there there's loads of loads of really interesting conversations
1: very cool. Well, the coffee line is is full. And so people are getting caffeinated if that's the only way they're going to grab their energy for the rest of the day. But yes, we're having great conversations too. Cool. So why don't we just dive into that founding story of Pan Intelligence? I'd love to hear about, you know, why this is what you're spending your time on.
2: Yeah, so it's a bit of a a potted history. I'll keep it brief. But um, I was fortunate to have a role model at home. My mum was in the early dawns of the information superhighway, the beloved internet as we know it now. Uh, encouraging people like Lloyd's Bank to buy a website. I love her story of going in and pitching to them. And they said, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, we're not really into this information superhighway. And then she sold it to Barclays down the road 24 hours later. And just being at that early dawn of uh, the cloud, it was called in, uh, advanced infrastructure provisioning. Uh, we we had the first computers at home, the first, first people on the street to have a computer, that kind of stuff. I grew up with it. So I left my education just wanting to be in tech. And I've always been in software and technology. I got to point in my life where I'd had two very young children. I'd been a sales director and sales leader for a number of SaaS startups, scale-ups, we'd exited a couple. And I knew I wanted to have a bit of a piece of the pie. (laughs) I was always looking for that opportunity to be in a founding team and to grow a business myself. And I set up my own consulting business, started to help SaaS vendors kind of take their businesses to market, a bit like a part-time interim sales director, really, to help them get off the ground. And I stumbled across a a company in a company or a product in a company called Pan Intelligence uh, my co-founder, CTO, who was messing around with a bit of tech, which is analytics. I'm dyslexic. He's dyspraxic. We like to make the complex simple. I love visual representation of data. I've always been engaged in technology that really does that, that makes the complex simple and makes the user experience for people truly engaging, no matter your level of expertise. He was doing that. And we get on brilliantly, we started working together and then we had the opportunity to buy the IP, so we did. And we spun the business out in 2014. And really our obsession more than anything else is the business intelligence analytics industry has spent years making a meal out of not Proving the value of analytics at that kind of domain expert level. The people that make decisions are the ones that need to be able to find the insights for themselves. They know the questions to ask. So we've got to make it easier for them to do that. So our obsession is enabling everybody to build whatever they need for themselves when they need it in whatever application they're working in day to day. And uh, that, that's what we do. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah. And, and so, founding story being a mantra on buyout. That's an interesting, you know, origin journey. Like, can hmm. you talk any more about that? Was it was it leveraged? Were you raising money for that? Was
2: oh gosh. It uh, so the the business that we were part of was a big banking software provider, end to end lending platform for the big banks. They were going to sell the business, and we were a loss-making small team that were just proving the tech out and starting to find customers for it. We made their p look worse, so we just said, well, if we could buy this off you, would you let us? And they were like, yeah, sure, it's going to make our valuation better. Go for it. So we then went and found some seed funding. It's a bit kind of friends and family, people that knew us already. Yep. And uh, it was just good timing for them, good timing for us. And we're a very small team and spun the business out. We literally picked our server and carried it across the car park and squatted in somebody else's office for about three months whilst we tried to get, I mean, it took us three months to set up a bank account. I mean, crikey, it was, it was, um it was fun. So very, you know, very much um, a startup, but we did have a product and we did have some revenue, but it was no different to most startups, you know, doing all the things from scratch with a very small team. But yeah, a nice place to be when you've incubated your product a little. Been in another company,
1: yeah, uh, absolutely. So you had some IP, yeah. You had someone's office you were borrowing, some members of staff as well that came. Yeah,
2: we did. We chipped a few people over, so a developer and uh, a consultant, and myself and my co-founder, and uh, one of the other members of the team that exited came and joined us as well in a finance role. So uh, yeah, we have had a an interesting, different start, I suppose, but we. You know, I'd been involved in a number of other startups. It was just nice to be able to kind of empty my bank account, which I did. I convinced my husband with two small children that were preschool age yep. that we should um, put all our savings into pe- buying a piece of IP and then go for it. So best thing I ever did,
1: it really was. That's awesome. I love that confidence and you can find innovation anywhere, right? And yeah, you know, I, I, I've got a few friends who've gone through that process. Most of them have been unsuccessful in being <laughs> able to draw, draw those lines around the IP. So I love the fact you were able to do it. Did you raise equity finance afterwards to then yeah. scale? Business? We
2: did. So we um, grew pretty organically from 2014 to 2019. Acquired lots of customers. Got up to about 30 staff very much investing back into the business, pretty much borderline, break even most of that time. Great. And then in 2019, uh, we raised a series A. Uh, we did that through private equity and so a family office in the UK. And that's enabled us to, we, we raised about 2.1 growth cap. So it wasn't a big round, but it just gave us what we needed to accelerate our go to market and also to invest in our SaaS platform, which we developed out, but needed to just rapidly on develop for a, for a more product led motion. Yep. Which has been brilliant, and uh, we raised that in November 2019. So that's not a bad time to have raised, and we've just closed another uh, another round in the last month. Um, yep. So you know we're, we're we're delighted. Really, we've been able to kind of cross into the US as well uh, in that time and, and build out our our customer base globally.
0: Next, Xandra talks about competing against giants.
1: Very cool. So uh, I love that you raised the the uh, neurodiversity point earlier. So we'll come back to that in a moment. And before we do, you know, on the topic of perhaps seeing things through a lens other people don't see it, you're in a challenger space, right? There's some massive businesses in your market that you're competing against. Some people yeah. think we're mental. <laughs> you got Looker, you got Power BI, you got all these big. Funded companies. Yeah. So talk to me about, is that part of the fun? Oh, uh, my God. What does that, that mean to as a strategy? strategy. Yeah.
2: And look, we've been in the BI space for, uh, my, my co-founder and me, I've been in and around the BI and analytics space for many years. And it's over-promised and underdelivered for a very, very long time. And there's way too much complexity built into the legacy enterprise tools that require people with certain types of skills to make things useful. And they're usually locked away from the value, so they don't get it. They don't get what they're building and why that's important. And they're slow and it's a long process so you know there's so much potential in doing this better and i think for me there's an opportunity when you're a smaller business and you're at that challenger space you often find the people that are using those legacy tools will come and tell you the problems they probably don't tell power bi or looker but they definitely tell us and that gives you this unique opportunity to really kind of truly know and understand what you need to do to to deliver that value and I think we're so close to that now as in we understand it, we're delivering that through our software vendors, we're enabling them to do this really well. And that gives us a fantastic route to market because we, we get embedded in a software platform We're immediately switched on to hundreds of thousands or thousands of users and we get that feedback loop very quickly of what, what's enabling them. So I, I think it's brilliant, I love it. I, taking on the, the big boys and winning is, is always part of the joy, 100%. <laughs>
1: Well, they're spending lots of money to educate the market oh, right. and we'll to win off that.
2: Hang off the coattails, totally, yeah.
1: And do people you know, work with you because of a differentiated viewpoint, or is there a you know a feature differentiation that you prove or
2: I could you bore you? you to tears with my feature differentiation. I will try not to. <laughs> That's you know, ask it product team about their product, and they'll, they'll you'll glaze over won't you and and we would but yeah of course there is in there's both in product and in people in product we're built for SaaS vendors the others aren't from the ground up everything a SaaS vendor needs from the way it authenticates connecting to their data without moving it the way it's white labeled how it's embedded not having to compromise on your data stack like i said i have a list but i won't get on but yeah we're built for SAS vendors for that only that use case embedding and white labeling for them So we totally get it and the products bill for it. People-wise, yeah, you're smaller. You can have a better relationship with the team. We're um, a scaling up business. We're working with scaling up businesses. So it can be founder to founder, CPO to CPO, CTO to CTO. The quality of that relationship enables true value creation because we can work together to make sure that what we build for their customers together, how we deploy that really drives that value because we're close enough to it with them. So they get that support and expertise. So we become an extension of their team. We become the data experts in their business, if that makes sense.
0: And now, Xandra talks about being intentional about inclusivity. And so you mentioned
1: your know, co-founding team, dyslexic and dyspraxic. Has yeah. that formed a view on who you want to go and hire and how you hire and how you hire, empower people in your team?
2: You should see our text messages between each other. It was an absolute nightmare. My co-founder is called Ken, and we call it Kenglish because you really can't understand half of what we say to each other. We just sort of know what each the saying. Yeah, we, we um, culturally, we have a very uh, diverse leadership team, and I mean that in lots of different ways, neurodiversity, gender diversity, backgrounds, race. If you look across our business, it is, there's a real mix. I think when you have diversity at the top level, it sort of fosters diversity naturally, but you still have to work at it. It's not, you know, you have to be intentional. But I think it's, um, for Ken and me, we we don't perhaps have the same concerns that maybe other people have because we know how to kind of help people operate to their potential and their strengths because we've had to do it for ourselves. Yeah, so, so I think maybe we, we just do it naturally without really thinking about it, attracting people in like us, maybe.
1: <laughs> so I'm sure listening to this, whether live or on the podcast, There are lots of founders who are told but they need to be intentional about they, uh, I've, you, you used that word, intentional about how you include people, intentional about how you work on this. Can you give us some practical examples of that? Here? Oh, gotcha. How can you be intentional as but a factor? There's,
2: there's so many ways that you can, so I, I often get asked by, by a lot of founders about gender diversity. Me, me, as a woman, it's an obvious question for to ask me and you know there's some very simple things you can do. So the technology sector we, we have a brilliant way of bamboozling everyone with language and terminology that unless you're in the, the sector can just feel completely alien and makes people not believe that it's a place for them. Yeah, very first thing is when you're trying to attract people into the industry that may not be in it today, build that talent pipeline, you've got to get rid of the jargon. And that's right the way through from the job specs to the job boards to the Interviews and how we make sure that we lower that barrier of entry so that you know it is proven that women are more likely to look at a job spec and if they can't do 100% of it, they won't apply. Whereas a man is more likely to apply if they can only assume 30% of themselves in it or 10%, so, or 10% right? So, the point here is let's reduce the language and the complexity of that language to enable everybody to see this as a sector that is a place for them. The other thing we need to do is be visible as, as women in the industry, we have to get out and be be seen. If we're not in the schools and in, thank you for inviting me on this podcast as part of being visible, right? Then you don't, you can't be what you can't see. It's really very fundamental. And we need to be showing young girls the pipeline of talent is a problem because it's the education system that is still not enabling young girls and women to see the more technology subjects that there is a career for them that they can enjoy and that, that is for them. So we have to be visible and we also have to educate young people on the different types of roles in our industry. Everybody thinks it's coding. We still have this problem. You ask a young person and they'll tell you, "Well, I'm not really bothered about computers. I'm not interested in coding." They still don't understand all the wonderful, creative, interesting, dynamic jobs that there are in this industry and just how how much fun it is in this sector, you know, unless we tell them. It's fun. It's not all coding. You're not signed behind a computer all day. I mean, look at this event. This is a great place to be. If we don't live, give them that opportunity then then we're just going to attract, I'm afraid, I've got a boy who's 14 and a girl who's 16. My 14-year-old boy spends a disproportionate amount of time on his Xbox. Whereas my daughter spends more of it talking to her friends and therefore boys will unfortunately more likely to go into computing. It's just the way it is.
1: So it sounds like you had a fantastic role model in your brother, who was you, know, someone who was, you know, clearly a, a technology leader was able to bring that into the home. How, yeah. what do you think about or how do you advise other parents about leading their children into, you know, perhaps decisions that would not be norm in their culture? Like okay, something there are things you're doing intentionally as a parent yourself, and how do you talk to other parents about that?
2: Most children don't listen to their parents. In fact, if my mum had told me to go into tech, I might not have done that. She just led by example by just bringing her passion and energy for the industry into the home she never made me feel like it's something I should do I just got inspired by her just seeing her grow really. It's hard as a parent I think you can't always influence and when you, if you try to you can push them away from those things. My teenagers don't listen to me. I mean at best I get a grunt out of them. They don't anymore and they will at some point maybe look back on things but it is actually, I think it is about helping the teachers and helping the schools to understand better what our industry can do for their young people and getting into spaces where those young people can experience Experience technology and software and, and understand it better. So, I think we're better off, maybe not as parents doing it, but maybe as adults and leaders getting in front of other people's children because they're <laughs> probably more likely to listen to us frankly. Yeah.
1: I love that. And are there programs you know of in your, in, you know, the Leeds area?
2: Yeah. Oh, oh gosh, there's those. I mean, so in Leeds, not that many people on this podcast are listening to it or in the room will be from Leeds, but if you are, there's um, a head partnership. Absolutely amazing. They work with some of the most underprivileged schools in the city. They run girl tech programs, green tech programs. They connect employers with those schools, a run initiatives that are really engaging from career panels to almost like speed networking with founders type stuff. And that just gets you in a room with young people facilitated by an organization where they know exactly the right intervention and it's organized for you. But every city will have some kind of community, not-for-profit organization whose mandate is to do that. Just go and find them because they exist everywhere. It's not necessarily easy to, you know, we can't just wait for these things to come to us. You, you've got an intentional, right? If you really want to influence the pipeline of talent and see diversity in it, I have a third of my staff, at least a third of my staff this year have gone into schools to do just that. And, and they love it. And it's really great for staff you know, well being and happiness, they feel like they're doing something good. And often they're going into maybe schools that they went to themselves, which they really love. And they see their old teachers and stuff like that. So you know, just I think there's a lot of things to be said about trying to not just solve the problem that you have today, which is I don't have enough women maybe applying for a job go a little bit further down the talent pipeline. And, and, and it's enjoyable to do that. It's not
1: not a hard way. I word. love it. Because you're, you're really paying it forward there. Because it might not be people you ever get to hire in pan intelligence. But hopefully future generations will have an easier job as a result result.
2: Yeah, but your children might be working alongside them in the future. And they will be better people for working alongside diverse teams. And we'll have better products and better solutions to society's problems by having diverse teams deal building products
1: It's better for us all. Love it. Well, my daughter is 10. And last week, we had a detailed breakdown of Amazon's marketplace business model entirely her asking questions not being pushed by me and I was lost. Like the economics of it went beyond my brain, so I had to start Googling to give her, her answers. So I'm expecting in the next couple of you know c- couple of months, her to stop listening to me and have to go back to her teachers. But I love that there's people you know like yourselves, like your team, that are in schools in the UK. There's a, a program called Startup Sherpa, that an old colleague of mine runs in secondary schools, running innovation and startup programs with 14, 15, 16 year olds, and it's just incredible to see that creativity when they're set with a challenge. And it's about modelling it, as you said, you you can't be what you can't see.
0: Next up, Xandra talks about nailing your go-to-market motion.
1: So yeah, let's come back to kind of today, you're at SaaStock, you're trying to grow an intelligence against some very large US competitors, some of the UK as well. But what does the next year, few quarters look like for you? You've just raised a bit more finance. Is that all on go to market or is that on product? How do you think about investments in this market environment?
2: Wow, it's tough, isn't it, for people out there trying to raise finance. I think the market shifted massively. We're fortunate that the investment round that we've done, it's actually existing customers that have exited themselves and reinvesting back in the business because they they understand the value and have seen the value. And they've exited and said, right, okay, can we write you a check? No problem. <laughs> so that's really cool. That's a real validation, the business. And you also bring in expertise because it's SaaS founders that are getting behind the business, which is amazing. So I think what's next, which, so it's not about product for us now. It is go-to-market. We've been absolutely obsessive over our ICP. I cannot tell you how narrow that's got. and But in a way, it's been an absolute godsend because we're just seeing that driving now through, you know, it's, it's reducing our cost of acquisition. It's accelerating our expansion revenues because we're absolutely winning the the right fit for our company and our product. It's, just, it's so it's such a critical thing that we've we've nailed that this year.
1: <laughs> so I'm sure everyone in the audience thinks that they're focused. So talk to us about how focused your ICP is. What are but, the attributes?
2: So about 18 months ago, we said, right, it's got to be SaaS vendors. They've got to have a minimum of 1 million AI and they've got to have raised some money, okay? Okay, no, it's got to be SaaS vendors that are on AWS because that's we've got less competition there, you know, Power BI on Azure and Looker on GCP. Okay, great. Actually, no, yeah. we, we need to then think about, you know, maybe how many employees they have, where are their development teams based, how big was the last round, were they previous founders? We've now got 20 ICP characteristics. We qualify out more by 70% we qualify out yep. of our MQLs before they don't become an MQM, they literally disappear, even if there's interest. Because actually, for us, we need to find those SaaS ventures, those SaaS businesses, which are ready for us, and they need us, and we can deliver the best value to them. If they're too early, they're probably not going to be able to invest in the time that They need to think about driving the value from data. They may not have enough data for that to be a big enough problem or enough customers. Equally, if they're too late, they may have tried to build out too much for themselves and their dev teams are too invested. So there's a really critical point for us. We're agnostic of cloud providers. We're agnostic of all of these things. But as a business, we've become really focused on. Actually, if you're an AWS and you're at a certain stage with a certain... Uh, level of um, of investment in the business is probably the right time for you to be looking at what we do timing is everything i think ready to buy at <laughs> yep. least these people ready to buy does it solve a problem for them they really have otherwise if it doesn't they won't get the value and they'll leave and if you come in too late you're trying to maybe convince too many people in the organization to swap something out they're too committed to so that's the key for us is really knowing that we're hitting people at the right time same but all these characteristics so
1: so i've been at several businesses as we've walked through that journey of focus of deleting two-thirds of our marketing (laughs) database and sales reps walking out because their territory is no longer going to be supported and all the rest of it where did you see the point of highest friction as we went through that process of Focus. was it people was it process was it certain functions that didn't like the decision I think we, we always kind of go
2: how oh, but just this one we sneak this one through right when you're growing a business it's hard to say no when you see someone that's especially if the relationship's good and you're like oh, this guy's really great we're gonna we you know we think this is a really good fit and you have to be really honest with each other yourself and your prospect and the person that's talked to you. Is this the right time? Is it the right fit? Or do we just like it? (laughs) We like the idea of working together. We always have the best fit when there's a real compelling need. A customer's about to churn or their risk of churning because of data insights being a challenge or their competition is doing something and they're losing business to that. So a compelling need can be the biggest driver for, for, for the timing. And sometimes we'll meet people and there isn't a compelling need and they'll come back to us when there is a compelling need. So... It's always good to have the conversation, but actually true engagement as in let's let's work together on building something out. There needs to be some good strong drivers for both parties. And we like to be honest with people and say, Do you know what? Maybe there isn't enough of a compelling need for you right now, but make sure you come back. We'll give you all our resource and time when there is. And and that's when we throw the resource into to working with the people just at that point they really need us.
1: Yeah. Very cool. So one last question before we perhaps open up. If anyone's got anything from the floor, you're spending now some Capital that's been hardened on go to markets. What does that look like? What's your go to market motion you're investing in? Is this sales led? Is this product led? You mentioned earlier. Uh, how are you deploying it?
2: So we are, you can't really have a a product-led motion for an embedded product because there's quite a few different stakeholders involved, and rightly so, right? A SaaS venture is about to embed something third-party into their platform, white-label it, and it's essentially their product. So they're going to want to kick the tires on that, and they're going to want lots of stakeholders to be comfortable that this is a good product fit, technology fit, commercial fit. You know, there's, there's a lot of... So for us, we work through those stakeholders as part of that so that they're absolutely confident that this is a partnership it's not just buying a piece of tech off the shelf it's a partnership and we're working together there is a level of plg motion in the fact that they can spin up an environment point in their data and build something in a matter of hours of course so that initial does this do what i expected it to do but actually there's still other conversations to make sure people are confident that that partnership is is so for us it's a direct sales motion so it's usually B two B SaaS vendors that we we mostly work with, and we sell directly to their teams. So usually a, a chief product officer or a, a chief technical officer or a founder, depending on the stage that they're at. And they all have that sort of question around: do we build this ourselves or do we buy something in? And then we we start kind of that engagement. They spin something up. They start to build something out, and then we check that the fits right together.
0: What you'll hear now is Sandra answering questions from SaaStock 2022.
1: Fantastic. Well, really appreciate your time today. Thank, Thank you. you so much for spending it with us. Uh, any questions here before we move on? Hi, uh, I wanted to
2: ask, like, where do you see the future of the embedded analytics in world? Where do you think it will be
1: evolving into in the future?
2: Okay. At the moment, most people are still trying to solve the basics, just giving their customers the ability to just see what they need in real time and be able to choose how they see that data. So we're still there right now. There's two other areas that I think we're heading towards, but you've got to get the basics right first. As SaaS businesses, we need to get our own house in order. We're not very good at kind of giving ourselves visibility of our own real-time metrics. So there's also a bit of that, getting our house in order. And then once we've kind of tackled the in-app and in-house stuff, we're all data companies. And in the next five years to 10 years, we're probably gonna be valued as much for our data assets as we are for the software. And understanding how we can unlock the value of that and the other monetization opportunities is absolutely where we all need to be thinking in our future roadmaps and planning, because that's your, not just expansion opportunities, this is new use cases new users, new monetization streams. So most of our customers are still doing the basics. We're still helping them with just better in-app reporting and better in-house reporting. But where we get really excited are the ones that have that vision for seeing themselves as data companies, not software companies, and they want to unlock that value. For me, that is the really, really exciting opportunity that we all have. And that's when we'll drive the valuation of our businesses.
1: Hi, I love the the fact that you have course content on your site and like training materials. I was, I'm curious, like at what point did you decide to introduce that and what impact has that had on users like for acquisition, monetization and, and uh, retention?
2: Okay, great question. So I have this machine of a COO called Charlie She's an ex RAF fighter pilot. And if she was here, she'd absolutely kill me for telling you that. But she is unbelievable. And she gets, truly gets the value of self serve from an early onboarding phase. And what I mean by onboarding, it's not that they've made the decision to buy. This is pre onboarding. This is, I just want to be able to see if this product does what I think it does. And maybe a lot of people simply just want to watch a few training videos, have a go themselves. It might not be a true proof of concept, but actually what it does is it allows those allows those people to kind of experience the product in a way that suits them. I'm a big believer we all learn differently. Some people will listen to a podcast, some people will watch a video, someone will do, do training, somebody else will read documentation. You've got to offer, because we're all different and we all learn differently, those different ways for people to kind of onboard in a way that suits to them. So for me, I think that training and documentation is much about that letting people Consume an understanding of your product in a way that works for them to then get them into the funnel to then have a conversation with you. It's also really useful when they're in that conversation and you want to train them. But I actually, it's it's as useful for getting them into the funnel. We see a lot of people just going onto those courses, watching the videos simply to learn. Wanted to ask quick question around the TV structure right now so like what are the core things that you've been working out when it comes to your next milestones in your company okay. and what has been potentially you know being a female founder myself as well these things can be you know inspire a lot but it's important to also back it up internally so I would love to hear a bit more about that too. So we're obsessing over the, our go-to-market things at the moment. Uh, so we're building out our sales and marketing operations a lot more. We are focused on and have been always, but continue to be focused on bringing people outside of the tech industry into tech. That helps with diversity, but it's also a really good way of building building talent within the business that has a different perspective, which can be really good. They also don't use all the language that we use. So it's actually great for being able to talk to people at the right level. So we tend to take recruitment consultants that have been placing tech people and bring them into the sales team and bring them up. And that works really, really well for us because they're great hustlers. But they're also they've got some of the language, but they know how to talk at a at the right level with lots of different stakeholders. They're used to speaking to C-suite. So they're really good at that. So I would definitely recommend recruiters for SDRs and BDEs. And then we work with somebody called North Coders. I don't know if you've heard of North Coders. If you're in the north of England, you have. If you're not, well, hey, there's somebody elsewhere that you can use. But they basically retrain people into dev and technical roles. That helps us with people that are returning to work, often women or people that are changing career pathways. So that's great for diversity as well. The great thing is they're also paying to do those courses, like £10,000. So if you've made a decision to retrain, pay to retrain that commitment to that career is it's a good different energy to it and they they really bought in and invested but not only they bring their experience from their previous role into that lens and perspective on development so they have a more broader view of what they're doing and why they're doing it so we get all of our junior devs through north coders and we get most of our sales teams from recruitment companies so they're my top tip
1: awesome well thank you again Zandra. i'm sure you'll be you. allowed if anyone wants to come up and ask anything face to face have a fantastic rest of the show Enjoy the rest of your day and safe Mm. night back to Leeds.
2: Thank you. Hopefully not as bumpy. (laughs) Cheers, guys. Thank you very much, everybody.
0: A huge shout out to Zandra for doing this podcast. Now you have what it takes to build a talent pipeline. Today, we talked about spinning pan intelligence out of another company, competing against giants, being intentional about inclusivity, nailing your go-to-market motion, and finally, a Q&A from SassDoc 2022. Make sure to give Protect the Hustle a five-star review and tell us what lessons Xander taught you from today's episode. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from Paddle Studios, dedicated to helping you build better SaaS.